Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please stand. We'll begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, as we go with your Son into the desert to take up the discipline of Lent, the prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, we ask you to direct us to live lives of holiness. And we ask this at the hands of our Blessed Mother Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please welcome back Dr. John Cudaback. Thank you. Good evening, good evening. Thanks, thanks so much for coming back once again. Uh, I, I, just, I just have to uh, tell you real quick, if you'll indulge me, a very quick Ash Wednesday story from my, um, from my six-year-old daughter who um, brings smiles to the rest of us in the family very often. But this time, she was simply sitting in her car seat. My wife was in the, in, in the front seat, and they were waiting to, to pick up someone coming out of the building, and a lady that we know was, was walking by outside the car, and she is one of those people that actually is a very nice person, but tends to have a very furrowed brow, and be looking very serious, and, and, and looks unhappy. So she came walking by, so in her kind of way of walking along, looking serious, and so my wife saw Juliana just press the button to roll down the window, so she goes, she leans down, and she goes, hi. And the woman kind of looked up and, and, and smiled and said, oh, oh, hi, 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 Juliana, and went on her way. And so then Juliana rolled up the window, turned to my wife and said, now she feels better. <laughs> so, oh, boy. So, I don't have any commentary for you other than children are just an unspeakable joy. Um, all right. Well, today our, our theme, there's a handout. If, if you don't have it, um, there, there's hopefully a couple more copies back there, The Virtuous Life. Um, last time we got to talk briefly about justice, and, and now we're going to focus our attention on especially uh, courage and temperance. Um, and if you look at the handout, I just want to start with a little bit of a review and tell you what a moral virtue is. Moral virtue, an habitual disposition, wherein the order of reason is in the appetite, literally in the appetite, either the passions of the sense appetite or the desires and actions of the will. So, the moral virtues, there are three of them, are always in a power that we call the appetite. We spoke last time about justice, which is in the will. And so it is this w habitual will to always be rendering 
what is due in all circumstances. The two we're going to focus on here this evening are the two that are in the sense appetite. So we have courage and we have temperance that are both in the sense appetite. And a key point of understanding the sense appetite is to understand what we mean by the term passions. And so I put a little definition down as our next there at the top of the page under a few definitions. Passion, a movement of the sense appetite that involves a bodily element. That's St. Thomas Aquinas is following Aristotle's definition of a passion, a movement of the sense appetite that involves a bodily element. Give a couple of examples here. Fear, bodily desire, and anger. Now, no, the interesting thing is passions are actually something we have in common with animals. Right? So you can say it's because human persons are also animals that we have these amazing things called passions. So I, I like when I'm, when I'm teaching the human nature course, I like to give an example of one time when I was actually going to be introducing the passions in class, I was a little bit late, and as I was, as I was driving to class, I came upon a, a, a speed trap. And uh, as, so I was able, it was perfect, I was able to uh, tell the students, you know, guess what? I actually had a passion right here today on the way to school, and I'm going to tell you about it. As I was driving in, you know, I'm driving along, just going a little bit too quickly, and I looked up, and I saw a police car. And immediately, I experienced a passion. And, I'm gonna sh and, and, and one of the neat things about it is you can see what Aristotle and St. Thomas mean when they say there's a bodily element to it. Because when you, when you see that police car, it's a... <laughs> it's just literally, literally a, a movement within you of... <gasps> this, kind of a, this kind of a constriction of the heart. And the interesting thing is that you know, the ancients are so funny. I mean, they say that most of the passions in some way involve the heart. When you mean note how it's the same, it's for all animals, all the higher animals. When we are afraid of something, the heart is immediately involved in pumping more. When we have a strong desire, the heart is involved. When we are moved with anger, all of these passions, I mean, picture one of the interesting things is, most passions actually involve a turning red in the face. Some of them involve a turning white in the face. But it's, there's, there's always this bodily element, and it's different depending on what the passion is. So key thing to see about the passions, again, is it's this, it, it, it involves the soul. There's a kind of motion of the soul, but there's also a motion in the actual body. So for an example, Example, again, something like desire. We talked about this a little bit last time. How, how do we talk about what desire is? It's a kind of inclination of the soul towards whatever it is in question. So when we have a passion of desire as regards, say, a food, again, there, there is a kind of bodily element involved in having that passion of desire. And there's a kind of inclination in the soul towards, as it were, mm, it's, it, it's hard to say what it is other than we kind of use the words, you know, I want, right? But there's a passion of desire. Or, we, similarly, a passion of fear is an actually, we'll talk about this more in a couple of moments when we come to talk about then the key virtue that's going to have to do with this, courage. 
but it's there it has to do with not some good that you're inclining towards, but some perceived evil that's going to be a problem and that you're kind of recoiling from, as in the case of seeing a speed trap and you're immediately, as it were, recoiling from it. So there's some inclination of the soul kind of either towards or away from, and it always involves some aspects of a bodily motion also. And then there, there's these different kinds of passion. Again, anger, fear, desire, etc. All right. So, virtues themselves, here's the key thing, is literally an incarnating or an embodying of the order of reason in the appetite. It's an incredibly beautiful notion of when we talk about it becoming habitual. The actual appetite itself has been transformed, has been formed by ongoing actions such that the order of reason, remember the last time we talked about how there is an objective order of reason that we can discover. This order of reason has literally been put into our appetite so that then the appetite of itself moves rightly. So in other words, we feel the passions in accord with the truth of reality. It's, it, it's, it's, it's almost foreign to us to be able to picture such a thing. But I, I call upon you, try to picture how beautiful that is. Picture a human person where every passion that is experienced is right. In other words, is truly in accord with how we should be responding to that situation. Desire is felt rightly for right things at the right time. Fear is felt rightly. Do you see how this is, we talked last time a little bit about the difference between the one who has developed the virtue versus one who has simply developed the self-control to be able to keep oneself from acting badly when we have bad passions. So since the main thing that I want to be emphasizing here is we are called to more than just being, to use the Aristotelian word, Aristotle's word, we are called to being more than just continent. And continent means able to control the bad passions. It is extremely important when we have bad passions to be continent and to control them. But the, the, what I would say is, as it were, the natural good news of this great insight of our tradition is seen by the Greeks without the aid, at least direct aid, of divine revelation. We are called to much more. We are called to the beautiful state of having, as it were, the spiritual meet the bodily, literally, 
in our passions. Let me put it this way. Where else can you say you literally have a material bodily reality that is formed by the spiritual? In other words, it literally is an incarnation of spiritual value. I say to you, that's what the virtuous person's passions are. That literally, the bodily response even is spiritually right. You see how, again, this order of reason being embodied, incarnated. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful moment, I think, to step back and, and even just to ask the question, have you ever thought of this? Why do we have passions? Why does a personal, rational being have passions? However exactly we answer that, I think there's always going to be a certain moment of wonder about it. We can't give the complete account, but we can in any case see, wow, clearly it's part of a beautiful order wherein in this creature and in this creature alone, again, spiritual values literally form material reality. Angels don't have passions. In certain ways, we might be tempted to think, well, that's you know, good for them. They're kind of you know, relieved of the burden. <laughs> well, I mean, particularly, I put it this way. That's a statement by the likes of us who are not yet, not yet, we pray, rectified in our passions. For I think the angels look upon a virtuous person with a kind of wonder and say, wow, look at what it's like when the order of reason is in an animal. Desire, proper anger, fear, but right fear. If I may just call up here at this moment an image to go theological for a moment, well, go theological, more than going theological, go to the top. Our Lord had passions. Think of what that was like. The Gospels make a point of showing him having sorrow, for instance, at death. Sorrow is a passion. Angels never weep. But Jesus wept. He had the passion of anger. Anger, when properly experienced and acted out, is a beautiful, granted somewhat scary, but truly beautiful thing. So there I just, I call upon that part of calling up an image of what passions done rightly are like. The Aristotelian view, the great view of our tradition, is not Stoic. The Stoic view in general was Basically, try not to feel passions. No, no. Ours is much more beautiful than that. 
We're all about passions and transforming that power called the sense appetite so that it experiences passions well. And I dare say, isn't that something to, to look forward to? Let's take a look at courage. Definition of courage, I should have put in the handout, I didn't, I apologize. The virtue of having order in the passions of what's called the irascible appetite. The virtue of having order in the passions of the irascible appetite, most of all, fear. And at this point, all I'm going to do is, is particularly focus on the, the main distinction between the irascible appetite and the concupiscible appetite is in the different passions that are, are in, in each. And the main one that characterizes the irascible appetite is fear, and that's what we'll focus on then here in looking at courage. Main insight that is behind our traditions treating courage as one of the cardinal virtues. The word cardinal comes etymologically from the word that means hinge. The cardinal virtues are held to be cardinal virtues because these are the hinges of the good life. They're the hinges on which everything that's most important in life turns. So the fundamental insight behind this virtue and its importance is that the good life is, and if you'll allow me to use a Latin word here, because I find it's an aid to memory. That's the only reason at times I use Latin, because it, it, it helps students retain things, and then we will immediately give the translation. Human life is a bonum arduum, which simply translates to an arduous good. It's a very beautiful insight here. The good human life is very difficult and thus a necessary virtue in order to achieve it will be one of being able to endure difficult things. So we're going to need, especially going to need a virtue that deals with this special passion, which is fear is a recoiling from a perceived evil. Fear is a recoiling from a perceived evil. Central, then, in our life is how do we experience fear? And central in being able to live a truly good human life will be then, do we fear rightly and are we able to rectify that fear so as to be able to live in very difficult situations. Take a look, if you would, at a quotation that I give you on the page from Aristotle and you'll see a structural similarity between this quotation and the next one we're going to look at when we come to temperance. I really love this. The man then who faces and who fears the right things and with the right aim in the right way and at the right time and who feels confidence under the corresponding conditions is brave. For the brave man feels and acts according to the merits of the case 
and in whatever way reason directs. Do you see, it's a very subtle point. You see, what, what, he's, what he's trying to convey there is the courageous man has proper fear. Quick, quick point of comparison, a kind of uh, popular bumper sticker or window sticker is no fear. I'd like to just throw out at you, in an Aristotelian analysis, that is a serious misinterpretation of manliness. Right? We especially associate courage with manliness. Of course, all are called to courage, but you know, it's, it's normally in a man's pickup truck that you see this bumper sticker that says no fear, right? So th this is the thing. We have an in an age in so many ways doesn't understand what real manliness is. Courage fears what should be feared. And it does not fear what should not be feared. A truly courageous person knows what is truly to be feared. Aristotle likes to use the example of a soldier in battle. A good soldier should fear for his life. It's an important part of fighting and fighting well. But then Aristotle's quick to add, but he should fear more than fearing the loss of his life. He should more fear acting without honor. He should more fear damage to his homeland and to his family. So when a man is called upon to defend hearth and home, he stands up with real fear in the proper amount for each aspect of what's involved. Yes, I'm afraid to lose my life, but all the more I am afraid that that which I must now attack might take away something that is much more important than my life, and thus I move with confidence to attack. This is a classic image, again, of experiencing fear rightly. And Aristotle likes to use that as an example. Through much cultivation, a man, a person, can do this as a second nature. Without thought, we simply experience fear rightly. Again, for what should be feared and not fearing what should not be feared. There's two particular aspects to courage, according to Aristotle and Aquinas, and they refer to two different acts then, namely acts of enduring and acts of attacking. I'd like to just very briefly look at each of these. Difficulties sometimes simply need to be endured, but other times difficulties need to be attacked. Or you might say there are certain evils that right reason would call, us upon, call upon us simply to endure. Others, the courageous person realizes this is not something to be endured. This is something to be stopped. And you have to be able to tell the difference and experience the passion in such a way as to be able to act appropriately. I'd like to just throw out an example 
of each that I think might be relevant for us, how we can think in terms of in this day and age, in our vocations. How can we see courage in these two aspects as something that might make a, some, a big difference in our life? I found myself naturally under endurance, and by the way, under endurance, a sub-virtue, and again, we can't do this in all detail, but a sub-virtue here is patience. Patience is considered to be a part of courage. Patience is particularly enduring when you need to endure. It's willing to endure sorrow and not be overcome by it. When might we need to have the courage to endure? Endure in a situation of fear. Endure in sorrow because it is simply the right thing to do. I, I naturally found myself thinking of the incredible arduous good of educating and forming children in a culture that is so contrary. What must parents do? What must they endure? What sorrows must they be willing to simply deal with? Will they be afraid of but must have fear in the proper way so as not to be here's a great as so as not to be unduly saddened for the courageous man is not unduly saddened he is able to move on with good cheer even in the difficulty when i thought more about that example of of forming the children i thought you know and often a big part of it is how we parents are called to endure with our children how hard it is for our children to be so different. Nobody wants to be different. No one wants to be considered the strange outcast. And by calling our children to the greatness that they're called to, informing them to live that way, we are calling them directly into being different, downright, I say, outcasts. Maybe I'm, I'm showing too many of my cards of the stage of the life that I'm in right now of raising my children. But when I think of things that I had better be able to endure with courage, I think especially, where will my children be if I'm not able to endure and endure in good cheer the difficulty of raising my children well. What about a couple others with, without much comment? What about being able, about being willing as parents to be open to life? At times, talk about having to endure and to be willing to suffer, to deal with fear. What about simply enduring being so misunderstood or unappreciated? The good person must consistently deal with that. The virtuous person endures those things and endures them with good cheer for even the very, again, bodily passions have become so ordered. Let's turn to attack. Attack is 
a, a verb that literally means remove that which is threatening. Sometimes the courageous person is called upon to remove that which is threatening. I, I dare say this is, this is the one where where has this gone? Where, for instance, do we have the conviction, do we have the habit of intervening in, for instance, a friend's destructive relationship and realizing that it is incumbent upon us to intervene in that friend's destructive relationship and say, for your own sake, you shouldn't be doing this. Where are the parents who need the courage not to endure now, but to intervene and say to their children, we do not do that. I must now intervene. I need to intervene to say, this must be stopped. We cannot act in this way. Here is an aspect of courage, of strength. It takes much practice, but it takes intentional cultivation. The good life is never lived unless there is a very strong element in it of being willing to, as it were, attack. Never attack, of course, a person as such, but attack the evil in whatever form that we are called upon to stop. That is an essential part of courage. Let's go on to temperance. The virtue of having order in the passions of the concupiscible appetite, most of all for the desires for food and sex. So, the virtue of having order in the passions of the concupiscible appetite, whereas courage was most of all in fear, what we call temperance is most of all, though it involves others also, most of all in the desires for food and sex. Let's look at the, uh, the quotations here that we have from Aristotle. These, I, I think you're going to be moved by how Aristotle pictured this amazing virtue and how absolutely central to the good life he saw it as being. These are a little bit longer, but um, I think you're going to appreciate this. The temperate man occupies a middle position with regard to these objects. For he neither enjoys the things that the self-indulgent man enjoys most, but rather dislikes them. Pause. I want picture as we're reading this, I want you to picture the sense appetite of the truly temperate man. Again, has been so imbued with the order of reason through so much practice that we're going to see his passions are so different from what we would call the self-indulgent man. Be thinking of the order of reason is in the desires. He neither enjoys the things that the self-indulgent man enjoys most, but rather dislikes them, nor in general the things that he should not. He does not enjoy what he should not enjoy, nor anything of this sort to excess, nor does he feel pain or craving when they are absent or does so only to a moderate degree, and not more than he should. For instance, it's recognized if you're getting really hungry, you're going to be feeling hunger to a certain extent. But the temperate man literally has transformed his passions to the point of, even if he's extremely hungry, he, he, he's, he's not 
showing signs of being overcome by this. He literally experiences it differently, or does so only to a moderate degree, not more than he should, nor when he should not, and so on. But the things that being pleasant make for health or for good condition, he will desire moderately and as he should, and also other pleasant things, if they are not hindrances to these ends or contrary to what is noble or beyond his means. For he who neglects these conditions loves such pleasures more than they are worth. Isn't that a zinger of a line? The self-indulgent man loves his disordered pleasures more than they're worth. But the temperate man is not that sort of person, but the sort of person that right reason prescribes. Let's jump right into the second one. If then it, his sense appetite, more specifically the concupiscible appetite, which is the appetite that desires, if then it, the sense appetite, is not going to be obedient and subject to the ruling principle, by that he means our reason, it will go to great lengths. Aristotle's great at painting a picture of what you don't want to be. It, the appetite, will go to great lengths. For in an irrational being, the desire for pleasure is insatiable and tries every source of gratification. I think of my pigs. <laughs> I, I, they immediately jumped in my, into my mind. I mean, they will try anything to get at the food. They really will. The exercise of appetite increases its innate force. And if appetites are strong and violent, they even expel the power of calculation. Aristotle loves to point out the self-indulgent man literally acts like an irrational animal. The thing is, in an irrational animal, it's not ugly. When, when our pigs are doing anything to get at the food, you kind of think, ooh, ooh, ah, you know, maybe you step back a little bit, but you, it's not monstrous. But when we, in any way, act like that, it is monstrous. It's so ugly. And it's so scary. Hence, they should be moderate and few, his desires, and should in no way oppose reason. And this is what we call an obedient and chastened state. Ready for this great analogy? And as the child should live according to the direction of his tutor, so the appetitive element should live according to reason. Isn't that a great line? as the child should live according to the tutor, and if he does, he's a happy child. Our sense appetite should live according to reason. It, too, will be very happy, as it were. That is to say, we will be. Now, here is the best line of all. Hence, the appetitive element in a temperate man should harmonize with reason. Another, another translation of this is where it says, literally, the sense appetite and reason speak with one voice. That is what is meant by the virtue of temperance. Our appetites desire according to what our judgment is should be desired. Quick side point, do you realize in, in Catholic theology, that is exactly the way Adam and Eve's sense appetite was prior to the fall. 
do you realize they could not be tempted by their sense appetite, for their sense appetite was never moved by anything that it shouldn't be moved by. That whole situation is post-fall of our sense appetites moving when they shouldn't be moving. Right? And that's the whole thing that's meant by the simple line. And then they realized that they were naked. Now their sense appetite was moved on its own where it would not have been before without the judgment of reason. You know what I, I, it just it so excites me is, is when Aristotle talks about the temperate man here, without knowing it, he is actually describing a situation that could be said to be going back to Eden, where we, as it were, reform, retrain the sense appetite so that it doesn't move except precisely as when it should, thereby being all that it can and should be. Just finishing up that line there. Hence the appetite, the pet of elements, and the temperate man should harmonize with reason. For the noble is the mark at which both aim, the reason and the appetite, aim at the noble. And the temperate man craves for things he ought. Note, he does crave things, but things he ought as he ought, when he ought. And this is what reason directs. Quickly, I'd like to um, focus in with intemperance on that specific kind of temperance that's called chastity. Aristotle holds that there's three, I'm more going to give actually St. Thomas's language, there's three kinds of temperance, this cardinal virtue called temperance, there's three specific kinds of it. Their names are abstinence, which concerns food, sobriety, which of course concerns drink, and then chastity, which concerns sexuality. I'd like to focus in quickly on that, define chastity for you, the virtue that realizes the order of reason in the area of sexuality. This is what's meant by the virtue of chastity. The virtue that realizes the order of reason, or which brings it about in the order of sexuality. Literally, again, in the very appetites themselves, the order of reason has been placed into those appetites. I'm going to here turn to a great thinker of the 20th century whose name is Joseph Pieper and tell you two beautiful points that he makes about chastity before we go on. Chastity can be seen as preserving two fundamental human goods. The first is the more obvious one, the purpose of sexuality is preserved. And ladies and gentlemen, I, I know you already know this, but I think it's nice for us to remind ourselves of it so that we can have it in the forefront of our minds, so that we can be a beacon of this in this unique challenge in this sad world that we live in. Chastity is about having sexuality be all that it should be. We must never forget that. Sexuality is designed to be something profoundly beautiful and that's what chastity is all about. Making it, letting it be that beautiful. So when Joseph Pieper says chastity is about, reason always is about what's best for us. 
And so when we are chaste, and chaste, remember, Catholics can at times be confused on this because we think of the vow of chastity, which means no sexuality. When you talk about the virtue of chastity, it does not mean no sexuality. It means having the order of reason in the realm of sexuality, meaning pursuing sexuality as and when reason dictates. That's what we mean here by chastity. And so especially, I think it's so important to remind ourselves the good of the marriage and the good of children is always what's being promoted by chastity. Chastity is about beautiful marriages. Chastity is about the children. And I know I, I know if I just, to all of you who are married in the room, and I'm sure to all of you who are not married, and whatever your vocation is, you can appreciate the, the aspect, perhaps where this is most obvious, of a spouse simply reflecting on, I could never render what is due to my spouse if I am not chaste. I could never be to my spouse all that I am beautifully called to be unless I'm chaste. And likewise, I can never, ever be for my children what I must be. What they, for God's sake, deserve that I be if I'm not chaste. Chastity as all virtues are always about allowing the powers to flourish, to let the true human goods thrive. So the good of marriage, the good of children being preserved there by chastity. And the other quick one here, again, I'm taking from Joseph Pieper, and this is uh, particularly relevant now and something that I think we don't hear quite enough about. Chastity has a unique role in preserving the integrity of all the other powers in the human person. When you have a chaste person, you have a person who has the integral whole of a moral character. When chastity is lacking, then we have fundamentally blindness. It has always been a fundamental insight of our tradition that we connect two things, unchastity and blindness. Wherever there is lack of chastity, we are not able to see. We are not able to see the truth, the beauty of reality. And so this amazing fundamental virtue is about preserving in us being able to see reality, to see ourselves, to see other persons for what they are. So I, I, love, I love to come back to that. It's an inspiration. It's a challenge. I think it's a great point to share with others. Unchastity, unique cause of blindness. Chastity, a unique empowering of our vision. Real quick, real quick comment. We can talk about this more later if, you, if, if, if you're interested. Why? Why is it that a lack in this particular area, among all the other virtues, by the way, Aristotle and Aquinas don't think that chastity is the highest of the virtues. It just has a particularly important role. Why is it that a failure in this area, a lack of chastity, 
is particularly blinding, I throw this out to you for your consideration. I don't see them ex explicitly make this point. I would throw this out for your consideration. What is always blinding, most of all, is selfishness. And unchastity is to be selfish in the area where we are most naturally called to generosity. Precisely in the area which by its very structure is all about generous giving of ourselves, we're selfish. And to be selfish there is to be blinded at the core. I throw that out at you. I'd be interested in any comments or thoughts you have on that. I move on to my, to my kind of practical implication point here. We've talked a bit now about what the cardinal virtues are. We have talked about some instances of them. I'd like to just throw out at you, in view of a point that we made in our opening day, a practical suggestion by making a connection with another power of the soul. If you'd be so kind as to look at your handout, I put a definition on there of the power of imagination. Imagination, the interior sense power. This is a power of apprehension. Your imagination is not an appetite. Imagination is an, a power of perception. But it's not one of our exterior five senses. It's an interior sense power of retaining and recalling images perceived by the exterior senses. It's, 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 I think, my, my, my favorite interior power to think about. I think I might have told you this in the opening day. Very simple proof that you have the power of imagination. If you, if you right now, picture, picture somebody that you haven't seen for years. You know, a, fav a favorite teacher when, when, when you were young. You know, your, your grandmother. You can, you can close your eyes and we have this blessed ability of, there she is. That's the power of imagination. Human beings live very much by imagination. I won't, I won't go off onto this, but, but studies show how much of even when we're walking, for instance, our imagination is constantly at work and filling things in. That's why sometimes you can do a big trip where you thought something that was there that was not. That's why having un, uh, unusual distances between steps is extremely dangerous because people don't really look at steps while they're walking on them. We use our imagination because we have an expectation of where things are going to be. As we go about our day, ladies and gentlemen, imagination is always at work. Need I point out that as regards the particular area we are just talking about, chastity, I dare say, the, the major threat to chastity is in the realm of imagination. It's not in the realm of what we are directly seeing with our exterior senses. It's in the realm of imagination. Imagination, ladies and gentlemen, Aristotle would say, is a fundamental determinant of what we think and what we want. Imagination causes more passions in us, ladies and gentlemen, than our exterior senses do. We are constantly imagining things. When my children very often run into my bedroom at night and they're afraid. They didn't sense anything with their exterior senses. They imagined something and now they're very afraid. And that's not restricted to children. We are constantly imagining. 
we're imagining how people are going to respond to us. We're imagining what they're going to think. We're imagining what people are seeing when they look at us. Right? Imagination governs much of our activity. Why am I pointing all this out? This is an exciting point. Imagination is something that we can very much cultivate and work on. And I'd like to simply make this as a practical suggestion to you. If we want to work on forming the virtues that have to do with these passions, all of the passions, given that passions are fundamentally caused at root by how we perceive things, especially how we imagine things, something that is directly in our control is we can work on what we imagine. A couple quick practical things then. What's the first main way we can work on what we imagine? Of course, what's in the imagination was fundamentally, first of all, in the exterior senses. So we work on what we expose ourselves to as regards our exterior senses. Exercise a discipline there. Side point, all the spiritual masters made a huge point of this. Fundamental first step in developing the interior life. Get control and keep a very careful control on what we ever experience with our exterior senses. In a negative way, in the sense of keeping out things that should never be coming in. And in the sense of cultivating, exposing our senses to the great things that should be coming in. Great liturgical art, great music, the beauties of nature, right? as the things that we can be working on as regards what is coming in. Think of all the things that we could work on negatively as regards keeping things out. So I'm going to put that off to the question and answer here where perhaps we could talk that a little bit more. But I want to just throw that out at you, particularly in view of its being Lent. I always find in my family it's easiest when we can think of things that are concrete things that are in our control that we can try to, here's some positive steps we can take, things we can avoid, things we can cultivate, and I throw out at you a very simple thing that recognizes human nature and how virtues, habits, good or bad, grow by the role of imagination and are working on then how we are going to have that imagination be formed or not. I wrap up then by wanting to conclude by turning to simply the image of the good person as someone in whom the beautiful objective order of reason that we talked about last time, that we discover, we didn't make it up, the order that we are called to see and then live according to. What is virtue? It is, once again, having had that order become so embodied in us that it is us. It is now ours. I'm going to, go, I'm going to end by going theological and say, you know how we would say this theologically? We would say, God gave us the law, which is the expression of that great order of love for us. And he calls upon us to take that law and make it our own so that it flows out of us. And I leave you with the two quotations that are the last on your sheet if you would flip them over. I'll refer to the John Paul II quotation in our, in our question and answer. 
but look, if you will, at Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 11. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 11, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Dr. Kodabak, for this wonderful talk and for the wonderful series. I have a two-part question. Okay, the first part of the question has to do with courage. I kept thinking in my mind a good example of men who were trying to save the nuclear power plants in Japan. They lost their families. They had sorrow. They had grief, right? Compare that with, let's say you have a hive of bees, and they're being attacked. And those are the lowliest of insects, not even mammals. And they defend themselves, and they sting, and they defend the hive. And compare that with the human element in Japan, and why wouldn't the bees be an act of courage? That is a very, good, very, very fine question. And, and I, would, I would throw this at you. You have, to, you have to take this right. This could be misinterpreted. But I'd say, if you don't know, or further, I'd... I'd, I'd if you don't slash can't know that you have something to lose, then you don't really have something to lose. In other words, the bee isn't doing something that is heroic. It's doing something without knowing what it's doing, and it really isn't giving something up. You can't really give something up if you don't know there's something to give up. The bee does not know that it is giving up its life when it stings, but it is giving up its life. A courageous man knows he's giving up his life. He has so much he could, should live for, and he has the vision to see there is something higher, and he's willing to lay down knowingly all that he has. Therein is honor. So I'd say, first of all, he has much to lose that the bee does not have to lose. And he knows this. And there is an amazing beauty in that intentional witness to the hierarchy of things. That though I have so much in my private life, I'm willing to give it all up because there's something greater in our common good. That's all in the courageous man's witness. It's not in the bees. But thank you for that, for that question. Dr. Cudabek, could you maybe... Um, elaborate on the Christian practice of fasting in regards to um, being custodian of our 
uh, different senses, our appetite, our, our vision, stuff great, like that. Great, great, thank you. I, I'm not, I, I, I don't pretend to be a spiritual authority, but let me n note this. Fasting is multi-valued. So, for instance, there is the spiritual value of just giving something up out of love always has an intrinsic worth. And so St. Thomas, as the theologian, would say, if you give something up in fasting out of charity, this is a beautiful uh, witness to your charity, and it can be an instance wherein it will grow by your being willing to give something up. So there's a great spiritual value there. That said, and that's hugely important in itself, there's this other aspect that fits with what we've been talking about here more directly, of the another value of it is precisely how it helps you be cultivating the right habits. And the church in her great wisdom then knows this. And, and fasting is precisely encouraging us to be developing this virtue right here, most especially of having order in the concupiscible appetite. Although interestingly, also we grow in courage at the same time. Fasting literally is a way of practicing putting order into the concupiscible appetite and it also strengthens the muscles of being willing to endure difficult things. So great question and I'll just say that we are literally practicing both of these cardinal virtues, strengthening them when we are fasting, and that's in addition to simply the sacrificial meritorious value from the charity of it. But thank you for that great question. Um, you were talking about uh, Adam and Eve and how they, that they had temperate, uh, sensitive appetites mm -hmm. prior to the fall. Right. And if so, if we were created to have temperate virtue and courageous virtues and for all the virtues, how come human life is a bonum ardum? rather than a natural kind of state to be in instead of being pushed to sin. We always have to push ourselves to good. Once again, I mean, outstanding question. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a quick, quick two-fold answer. And I would say it would have been a bonum arduum anyway, simply in its greatness. It would have been arduous in this sense it still would have taken much working together. In a very notable place, um, St. Thomas asks, would there have been some type of civil society prior to the fall? And he says, where, where some are in authority over others. And he says, yes, there would have, because the good of human flourishing is so rich and beautiful and complex that it would have required the working together of so many different things. It would have taken having some in authority to direct all the different activities that go into this beautiful thing. So I'd say it still would have had a, an arduous character in the sense of it would have taken much coming together in much work, though it would have been, I'd say, more uniformly joyful but the other aspect is now it is arduous for us in a, in a further way, given our fall, given the fact that now our appetites run out of order. 
now it is especially difficult for us to put an order back into them. And I say, so interestingly, that's what comes to both your and my mind, first of all, when we think of arduous. And there I say your question is especially good because in that sense, it wouldn't have been arduous. We wouldn't have been having to work to put an order back in that, that is so difficult to get it in there working against our own fallen inclinations. That's an arduous aspect that simply comes because of the fall, but of course with grace we can do that. But I do want to point out the human good is still so wonderfully rich, good, and complex. It still would have taken much effort, but it still would have been a uniformly joyful one. It wouldn't have taken suffering to bring it about. It would have taken much work, though. I think, I think that's how to answer that. I stand under correction. It's about the imagination. I was wondering, um, is it ever proper to, I guess, present to the senses for the edification of the imagination um, something that is ugly or you know, not uplifting? Um, Okay, a great, great question. I, and I'd say that, that points to, um, to a certain extent, much is not in our control. And so obviously there's going to be the whole issue of how do we deal with, let's just say broadly, unedifying images. But that's not so much what you're asking about. You're more asking, is there ever occasion where we need to or would expose ourselves to? I, well, I'd say certainly there are going to be some instances where, okay, given the circumstances, we're going to have to expose ourselves to things that are unedifying, whether it's in going in to help someone who's in a very difficult situation or helping the poor or whatever. Um, I mean, as a rule, I'd say I would rather than saying the nevers not to do, I would rather encourage the positive. And so I say it, it, it times hard to draw exactly the line. So let, let's, let's make the universal be this kind. I'm not going to say never do such and such as much as I think the appropriate approach to cultivating our imagination would be let's think in terms of doing more to say no to the images that in varying ways are either unedifying or downright tempting and do more to fill our imagination with good things. I'm not going to quote it right now other than, other than what I put in bold in that quotation from John Paul II. Praying the family rosary means, quote, filling daily life with very different images. This comes right after a sentence where he says, unfortunately, what most families do when they seldom get together is watch television. And he's not implying that that's always wrong, but he says that, particularly in this day and age, is a source, by and large, of extremely, to say the least, unedifying images much of the time. He's saying, the point isn't to say that it's always that way as much as let's, change, let's shift the paradigm. Let's think in terms of, for instance, filling in great images by praying the rosary, seeing that as a way of developing good ones. Amazing lecture series, as always, and we thank, thank you for you that. Uh, you've whet my appetite, no puns intended. Uh, for those, those of us that want to learn more about the virtuous life, what uh, text would you recommend other than reading Aristotle, uh, Aquinas, and of course your, your book, which, which I've already read. What else could you need than those three? Um, um, if you really don't find that those three do it for you, 
And, and I'm not sure what is, but um, here. Um, the four cardinal virtues by the man, actually, that I was referring to a little bit. Um, if you ever go to Ignatius Press, Joseph Pieper has a, 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 a scad of books that have been translated from the German by Ignatius Press. One of them is called The Four Cardinal Virtues. He has another one that's called Faith, Hope, and Love, where he deals with these, first of all, as natural virtues and then as supernatural virtues, which is a profound work. His work on love is is, is, is truly amazing. So that, this right here goes through the cardinal virtues. That would be an outstanding. And just one other thing, if you want to look at it in a more theological context, there's a Dominican priest whose name is Romanus Cesario, who has several different books, if you were to just look him up, on the theological virtues, on the cardinal virtues. That's going to be kind of ratcheted up one, one further step. Thank you very, very much for asking that. Thank you very much, All Dr. Right, Cutterback. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Excellent. Excellent I program as always. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.